This is Framework Leadership. I'm Ken Tingle, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. A privilege today to sit down with Carla Harris. Carla is an influential author, leader, speaker, accomplished gospel singer. She's been a force on Wall Street for over 20 years, where she is currently a managing director in the Institutional Advisory Group at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Carla was named to Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 most powerful black executives in corporate America. And in August of 2013, Carla was appointed by President Barack Obama to chair the National Women's Business Council. Carla's passion for helping others is driving a, a driving force behind her. Carla's pearls, tools, strategies, and pearls of wisdom honed by her own experience. It's a pleasure to welcome you, Carla, to Framework Leadership. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's truly remarkable that you've accomplished so much in so many uh, different fields. I want to find out a little bit about your past. Where did you grow up and, and where did the drive come from? Absolutely. Well, I grew up right up the road uh, here in Florida at Jacksonville. So I'm a Jacksonville girl. My family moved there from Texas when I was eight years old. So the rest of elementary school, junior high, high school was all in Jacksonville. And, you know, I, I have to give my parents a lot of credit because they brought me up in a no excuses household. I could never say, oh, the teacher didn't give me this good grade because I was this or because I was that. So they always gave me a strong sense of responsibility that I was in charge of all of my outcomes and what I wanted to do in my life in general. And then I'd have to give a lot of credit to my paternal grandmother, who used to always say, baby, whatever you be, be good at it. Uh, right? And so in my mind, that meant whatever you bother to do, leave it on the floor, give it your all. And, and then lastly, my mother used to say something to me, um, which was her way of trying to tell me that there were inequities in the world and that mm. the world wasn't fair. And she used to say, well, Carla, listen, if you want to get an A, get the A+. plus." So if they shave you a little bit, you'll still have the A. Just be so outstanding that there's no debate. And I got to tell you, that has continued to drive me today. If I'm going to bother to do anything, you're going to get my best. Wow, that's powerful wisdom. Now, we may know you as a Wall Street powerhouse, but you're also a singer performing sold-out concerts at Carnegie Hall. What role did faith play in your childhood, and uh, how did you become interested in music? Yes, well, I have been baptized uh, Catholic since I was three months old, and and my mother was pretty strict about you know going to church every Sunday or going on Saturday afternoons. So that was also instilled in me, and I think that the the word is true about you know if you bring a child up you know in the faith or around the word, right. no matter if they stray or no matter what they do, it's sort of still in there. So right. when I got out on my own to go to college, I kept that that practice up. I would go to mass every week. And then when I started working on Wall Street, um, and then by that time, when I was in my mid-20s, you know, I was sort of opening up in terms of my spiritual walk. So there were other pastors or mega churches that I would also attend. I would always go to mass, but I would also attend other churches as well. Um, that came from, in eighth grade, I started singing in a Baptist church in Jacksonville. So I would literally go to mass at 930, leave at 1045, 11, go to the Baptist church and be in service from 11 to 2 and sing with their choir <laughs> and then go home. Um, so that, I think, really um, probably accelerated my spiritual journey over time. Uh, now, how did you get interested in the financial world? Well, after the summer after my sophomore year, I had an internship with this program called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, SEO, and it's still around today. And this brilliant man, Mike Oshowitz, had said, boy, how can we change the face of Wall Street? And in the summer of 81, he said, 
Wall Street has created these new analyst programs, which are designed to give you two years of work experience, and then you go on to get your MBA. How about I create a program where we get the best kids from the best schools, and we show these folks to Wall Street and let them work there for the summer in hopes that they, when they graduate, they'll, they will hire them. And it worked. It was brilliant. And I was in the next class. And oh, okay. that was when I got my first exposure. I was a sophomore, though. I wasn't a rising junior and not able to, you know, go work full time after that summer. But that's where I got the bug. Oh. I loved New York City. I loved finance. Um, and that's when I decided this was probably going to be my career. Yeah. Now, you started at Morgan Stanley in 1987. And I'm fairly sure there were not many women uh, in in major roles at that particular time. Uh, how did you navigate that world? And, and did you see yourself as a trailblazer? Yeah, I'll tell you, I didn't see myself as a trailblazer at all. <laughs> uh, you know, I was just a, a first-year associate trying to survive because everything you've read about Wall Street in the 80s was true. Yeah. Uh, they were the crazy 80s. And those 100-hour weeks that you read about, that was fact, not fiction. So I never thought about myself as a trailblazer, and nor was I ever preoccupied with being the only. Yeah. Uh, I guess I had had enough experiences at that point where I was the only woman in the room or the only person of color, and it wasn't anything that I was ever preoccupied with. It was clear that there weren't a lot of people who looked like me, but that wasn't a deterrent or it wasn't something that made me afraid at all. It was just trying to get through uh, and do what one needed sure, to do in order to survive on the street. Yeah. Black, white, blue, or green, male or female. <laughs> Uh, now, a few months ago, you gave a TED Talk that has been viewed over one million times. You opened the talk by describing that um, aha moment Ooh, um, yeah. that you had early in your career. Tell us a little bit about that moment and what it taught you. Yeah, I tell you, that was a huge aha moment because all up until that point, you sort of think about uh, the way that you're evaluated in a meritocratic fashion, because frankly, that's the way it kind of works in academia. You have things to study, you take a test, you get it right. right or it's wrong. So it's meritocratic. And yeah, if you have an essay test, there may be some subjectivity around it, but you don't even think about that in academics. And when you're recruiting, coming out of college or coming out of business school, every single company in every single industry will sell you a meritocracy. You come here, you can go straight to the top if you're smart and you work hard. So I bought it. But there are I was sitting in that evaluative process where it was a round table and there were senior people talking about, you know, the, the lowest level of professionals at that point. It was the analysts because the way that it worked was the associates and the VPs talked about the analysts. Mm -hmm. The VPs and EDs and managing directors talked about the associates. The EDs and MDs talked about the VPs. So every level had its own round table. So because I was an associate, I could be in the analyst round tables. Wow. And when I heard, you know, they, they called out somebody's name and someone said, superstar. And the person who was recording wrote down superstar, top group. Uh, they named somebody else's name. And then the person said, uh, you know, safe pair of hands. The person said, middle. And then they named somebody else's name and they said, disaster, disaster. The kids are and then, voila, that person ended up in the lower bucket. And that was the moment I said, who's going to speak for me? Wow. That's when I realized that this wasn't 
a process that was purely meritocratic or purely objective. It was really a function, not only of what you had done concretely, but also the view. And somebody had to speak for you. It wasn't like we were reviewing uh, a test or your answers to something. It was somebody who was reviewing your performance, reviewing your behavior, and that's when I got it, that somebody had to speak on your behalf. And I called that person at that moment a sponsor. Let's talk a little bit about Carla's pearls. Where, where did that phrase come from? Yes, I, I just started talking about my pearls of wisdom when I started giving the speeches about what I had learned. And the first time that I used that term was in February of 1990 at the University of Michigan when I'd been invited by the, the Black Business Association to come out and talk. And at that point, I was a third year associate. And I said, let me tell you what I've learned. I mean, let me just give you my pearls of wisdom. And then from then on, they've been dubbed as Carlos Pearls. Wow. Uh, in the last couple of years, you've started Morgan Stanley's Multicultural Innovation Lab. Yes. Uh, specifically, it's geared towards women and multicultural entrepreneurs. How how does an innovation lab actually work? How, yes. How you- it's a regular way accelerator where we, we send out an invitation to apply. And this year, we sent out an invitation to apply in November. And in a couple of months, we had almost 400 companies that applied. And then we look at all those companies and we take that down to, let's say, about 100. And then from there, we take it down to 25 or 30 companies that we actually invite to come in and present to our multidisciplinary investment committee. And when I say multidisciplinary, I mean there's somebody from an investment banking, somebody from sales and trading, somebody from asset management, somebody from technology. So all parts of Morgan Stanley. Uh, Um, are around the table. And we listen to them pitch, and then we ask questions, and we assess how they answer. We assess whether or not we think this is going to be a multi-billion dollar opportunity. But more importantly, we assess whether or not we, Morgan Stanley, can uniquely bring something to the table that will make a difference in scaling this business. Mm. So you could have a great business, you could have a great business, but if we think that we have something to offer your business that will really make a difference, then we're probably going to pick you, all things being equal. Right. Sure. Um, and then we we give these companies three things. We bring them in-house. So they are in-house at Morgan Stanley. We give them cash in exchange for a single digit percentage of the company. We give them six months of content. Let's talk about the latest and greatest uh, things that are on a term sheet. Let's talk about how you manage your cap table. Let's talk about how you put together a board. Let's talk about how you expand from four people to 40 people. All the things that you need to know to be a really successful entrepreneur as you take it from, you know, founding the company to actually scaling the company. And then even talking about what is a reasonable exit and how do you think about that and how you might negotiate that and how you might discern if now is time. Um, And then we also give them connections because as a leading global investment bank, there is not a company or really a person that we couldn't connect them to, especially a company that could make a difference as a customer or as an acquirer. Now, as you look at the the landscape in, in the financial world, what, what do you think is uh, the single biggest challenge women and minorities are facing right now? You know, it, there, I don't think that there is a particular challenge uh, in financial services. Uh, I think the challenge is knowing some of the things that, that I write about in, in, uh, in both Expect to Win and Strategize to Win that make the difference, difference. in your being successful in that environment. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's not... Uh, it is not just the financial services environment. I would say it's any you know organized and corporate environment, if you will. And that's re- recognizing the power of relationships, because if you think about uh, folks of color, we're sort of brought up, put your head down, 
you know, work really hard, you know, make sure you do a really great job. Nobody can take that away from you. And for women, we're pretty much taught the same thing. But the problem is if you keep your head down and you work really hard, you will do that at the expense of connecting and building the relationships Mm. that really make the difference as you get more senior. And you may have to work a little harder to get those relationships because if you are a woman and a woman of color and you're working in um, an all-white male environment, then you you might have to do a little bit of outreach because people right. may not know how to reach out to you. So it's not that they're trying to be unfair or unfriendly, but they don't know either. Right. And they're just as scared as you are. Yeah. So, you know, and I think understanding those kinds of dynamics and understanding the necessity of building those relationships, I'd say it's probably the single biggest challenge mm. because you are programmed to work, to right. produce, to put the points on the board. And that is not the end of the equation. In your book, Strategize to Win, you mentioned different types of work profiles, uh, a good soldier, mm-hmm. a leader, et cetera. Which are you, yes. and is there a preferred type for potential leaders? Yes, absolutely. It's it's interesting, and the reason I, I wrote about that is that I was trying to communicate that the way that you maximize your success in almost in any environment is to try to line yourself up with what's valued in that in that environment. So I talk about the argumentative type, for example. Right. So let me use that one. Um, if you're in a tech environment, they like people to constantly pressure test ideas, and they're used to people challenging them because that's what they do in order to innovate. But if you're in an 80-year-old corporation that's been very hierarchical and very patriarchal, Questioning somebody that's more senior to you, that's a problem, right? And so you need to understand that the argumentative type is probably not going to do well in that environment. You know, if I had to put myself in one of the boxes, I would definitely put myself in the leader box, but I'd also put myself in the good soldier box because I play very well in the sandbox and I do follow instructions extremely well. But when it's time to lead, I can lead. And, and I will lead in the absence of leadership. Yeah, no, that's good. One final question before we move and, and close this out with a quick uh, quick fire round here. Uh, what's the one piece of leadership advice that you would give? We you know we have the privilege to come alongside students here at Southeastern mm-hmm. University, but what would be that advice that you'd give a young person just starting out today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would tell them that in this environment, being collaborative and leveraging other people's intellect, experience, and their relationships is going to be critical yeah. because especially among millennials and Zers, and I would argue even younger, Xers, they value transparency and they right. tra- they value inclusivity. So they want their voices heard and they want it solicited. So you need to ask people, what are you thinking? How should we do this? I would tell them to overuse the we pronoun to the exclusion of the I pronoun, which was very different for those of us who, who were boomers. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is I would tell them that one mistake that I have consistently seen leaders make is not leveraging the people around them enough. Mm, That's good. Wow. All right, let's close this out. Three quick questions. You have a day when your calendar's cleared and you've been mandated by your company to have a perfect day off. What does that look like for you? Oh, wow. A perfect day off (laughs) would probably be starting my day at the diner, having some pancakes, (laughs) um, spending about three hours in the morning with my my three-and-a-half-year-old, then giving her the opportunity to either go play with some friends or to do something else while I go and have an afternoon on the golf course. All right, good answer. At dinner with my husband. Good answer. <laughs> what historical leader, living or dead, would you most like to sit down and have a cup of coffee mm, with? Martin Luther King Jr. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah. That'd be a great conversation. Yeah. 
Last question. What's your next big dream you'd like to accomplish? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I want to get a Grammy before I hang up my cleats. Wow, uh, either, either singing or speaking, because now they do right, Grammys right. for spoken word uh, or for podcasts. But yep. I want a Grammy. Oh, that would be great. Well, Carla, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, for more on Carla Harris, you can find her on Twitter and Facebook at Carla Ann Harris or at carlaspearls.com. Thanks for joining us on Framework Leadership. Thank you. To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.